Good morning and welcome to this IFG live event on whether with just three weeks to go business is ready for Brexit. This morning's event is kindly supported by the Sage Group, a global software company, so thanks very much for that. For those who don't know me, my name is Maddie Timajak and I'm an Associate Director at the Institute. Now on Wednesday evening, the Prime Minister and the President of the European Commission met in Brussels in a last gasp attempt to secure a Brexit deal. But rather than come to any resolution, their decision was to continue talking. Sunday is the new deadline when we have been assured they will make a decision, deal or no deal. But this would not be the first deadline missed this year. While we still don't know whether there is a deal to be done, the UK will leave the Single Market and Customs Union at the end of the year, which will bring sweeping changes to how businesses trade with the EU, affecting trade in goods and services, how businesses are regulated, and also the UK's place in the global economy. But businesses have had a difficult year grappling with the ever-changing COVID restrictions as well as the ongoing uncertainty over these negotiations. Today we will explore just how ready business is for the, for the changes coming, what more government could do to support them. Um, we will also aim to end on a note of optimism. There are clearly big challenges ahead but as we look to a future outside the EU, what opportunities might there be? With me to discuss all these questions and more, I'm joined by an excellent panel. I'm joined by Sally Jones, Trade Strategy and Brexit Lead at EY, who has worked with businesses preparing for the coming changes. I'm also joined by Adam Marshall, Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce, representing businesses of all shapes and sizes across the UK. I'm also joined by Adam Prince, Vice President of Product Management, Compliance, Brexit and Migration at Sage Group, a global software company who are kindly supporting this event. And last but definitely not least, I am joined by my colleague, Joe Marshall, Senior Researcher at the IFG and lead author of our recent report titled Preparing Brexit, How Ready is the UK? And we might have published that about a month ago, but I think most of the key messages very much still stand. Before we get going, I just want to say that this event is on the record and a recording will be available soon afterwards. Please do tweet along using the hashtag IFGBrexit and ask questions using the chat function on your screen. Now do send them in as we go and we will try and get through as many of them as possible, although we do definitely have a lot of ground to cover this morning. So if we start with a bit of a stock take about where we are and what we know about how prepared businesses are at this point, Adam Prince, could I come to you first to sort of set out your view of how ready businesses are for the end of the year? Thank you, and nice to speak to you all. So you did a survey recently, and we look after small and mid-sized businesses across the UK. We've got about a million plus customers. When we asked them, just just under 47% of them said they were getting ready to take advantage of Brexit. But many of them are still waiting for the final rules. They're, they're still a little bit confused. We also found that 20% of SMEs are planning to take advantage of the opportunities once they understand what they are. Thank you very much. Um, Sally, if I can come to you um, next. I mean, you've obviously, as I said in the introduction, you've been working with many businesses preparing for the end of the year. I mean, what's your perspective on, on business preparedness? And also, sort of how does it vary as well between sort of sexes and between businesses? Oh, good questions. Thank you for having me in the first uh, first thing to say. Um, our clients are telling us that they are not ready for Brexit uh, on the main. Um, we did a, a poll. Everyone does polls, right? And uh, and we asked uh, 2000 businesses, uh, global businesses, so completely the opposite end of the spectrum from Sage's client base. You know, did they fully understand the risks and had they mitigated them in full? And 80% said that they hadn't. 80% of businesses, global businesses, largest businesses said that they weren't either weren't fully aware of the risks or hadn't put 
mitigations in place. We've seen COVID rip apart Brexit preparations. We've seen financial distress because of COVID prevent businesses from rebuilding their preparations. Uh, and we've seen supply chains fundamentally move over the past six months. All of this coupled with lack of information from in particular the British government means that it's just not been possible for any business to get fully ready. So not necessarily a positive picture at this stage. Um, Adam Marshall, if I sort of come to you last on this for a question. I mean, you published, um, I think it was last week, the sort of 24 outstanding questions that you still wanted answers from government on. Um, from your perspective, what are the sort of key areas where businesses have struggled to prepare most? Well, for us, this has been all about clarity, precision and detail. I would echo a lot of what Sally was saying just a moment ago. Government guidance that provides generalities about changes that could or could not happen are not actually actionable by businesses. They need the, the, the detail, they need the gritty stuff around rules of origin, around 10 digits tariff codes, and around so many other subjects that to most observers just sounds like the kind of stuff that you do in a black box somewhere else, but it's, it, it, it's the nuts and bolts of doing business. I'm afraid what companies have been faced with rather than the detail that they need is letters like this one telling them to get ready and inevitably the response is, well, I would do if I had the right information to hand. So this is all about clarity of information. Thanks. And I think, I mean, we'll, we'll definitely come on to um, sort of what more information you might need and also the impact of the negotiations. But I did sort of wanted to start our sort of broader discussion today with um, some of the uh, sort of good news of this week. So we, we obviously the talks um, on the future relationship are ongoing, but we did uh, get sort of an agreement out of the UK-EU Joint Committee around some of the um, aspects of implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol and sort of how it might work in practice. Um, so if I can bring in my colleague Joe here now. At the Institute, we've been following the progress of these talks for most of the year, um, and we also flagged the Northern Ireland Protocol as one of the biggest issues of concern in our report um, last month. So if you can sort of give us a summary on what has been agreed and like also what it means for what needs to actually be in place for the 1st of January relating to sort of GB um, NI trade. Great, thanks Maddie. Um, I think, I mean, I would say it's probably fair to say that a Brexit agreement has been reached uh, this week, but not the Brexit agreement. So obviously those main trade talks are still ongoing, but we have got this agreement on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And um, this is obviously part of uh, the withdrawal agreement that the UK agreed with the EU last year. And I think we welcome sort of the fact that we have got some certainty here. It goes quite a long way to resolving some of the issues about how trade across the Irish Sea border would work and the potential sort of political and economic fallout in January, uh, particularly with the sort of UK government's uh, expectation that it might breach international law if some of these issues weren't resolved. Um, I think we should say that you know we've only got some of the detail. We had some detail come out last night and there's a lot more to come. Um, but broadly, uh, the agreement does a few different things. It resolves some of the issues that have been delegated or deferred to the joint committee to decide. Uh, probably most important here is the sort of at risk question, which is about when goods moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland and then potentially on into the EU, uh, you were at risk of moving on into the EU and therefore could be subject to tariffs where they're applicable. And what the agreement here has done is sort of introducing this new trusted trader scheme, which will allow firms that are eligible for that to sort of, uh, you know, uh, 
sort of confirm that their goods or you know, certify that their goods are not at risk of moving into the EU. And for firms that aren't eligible for that sort of information on this sort of tariff rebate scheme, uh, where they might be able to get these tariffs back. Um, and we're also you know, seeing that even in a deal scenario, it's expected that firms that are using the sort of trusted trader scheme would be able to avoid rules of origin certificates, which are a big sort of administrative burden on firms. I think the second sort of category are some changes to how the Northern Ireland Protocol would work um, based on requests from the UK and the EU. And a big sort of UK ask here was about avoiding the need for some uh, customs paperwork on movements from Northern Ireland into Great Britain. And we've seen here sort of agreement to avoid some of those things like exit summary declarations by instead drawing on sort of transport information and manifest information from shipping companies. And then the third category, which is probably most important for January and will be really important for many businesses, is sort of mitigations to prevent some disruption of the Irish sea border from the 1st of January. This is particularly important for supermarkets and agri-food sector, where there is real concern that some of the new checks and processes that were due to be introduced in January were going to disrupt supply chains, potentially lead to sort of shortages of certain products on the shelves. And what we've seen here is a few different measures. We've got a three month exemption from export health certificates. Uh, we've got uh, a six month exemption uh, from the rules which normally prevents sort of chilled meats being moved in sort of EU uh, territory. Um, and we've got uh, sort of pre-announced uh, agreements to sort of allow uh, medicines to continue to be moved from Great Britain to Northern Ireland without having to comply with new rules for sort of 12 months. And beyond that, uh, there's sort of a talk of what might happen after some of these uh, mitigations and sort of temporary measures have been in place. So on export health certificates and some of those agri-food checks, the government has sort of announced this movement support service in future, which will supposedly help firms uh, with the cost or cover the cost of some of these checks. Um, so I think generally all of these things are very welcome. Um, they sort of help resolve some of those issues. I think the big question and what need, affecting what needs to be done for January really is filling out the detail on some of these things. So we know, for instance, that, you know, trusted trader scheme was great, but we need to know the detail of what that looks like in practice, what information firms will need to provide in order to be eligible for that. We know, for instance, that, um, you know, the grace periods provided in many of these areas, uh, you know, are only temporary and therefore there's still some questions about exactly what's going to happen afterwards and whether firms going to be ready for that. It goes quite a long way to reducing some of the disruption, uh, particularly around sort of checks at the border. And we know that the Northern Ireland executive and government have really struggled in putting in place some of the infrastructure for those checks. Now, the government still thinks it's going to need some interim sort of temporary infrastructure for January. Um, but it's reached agreement, particularly on sort of physical inspections of supermarket products, for instance, which mean that some of the disruption to supply chains is likely to be you know, far less. But we also know that a lot of customs paperwork will still apply, and a lot of weight for this has been put on this trusted uh, on this uh, uh, this uh, trader support service that the government is introducing, which will carry out a lot of these formalities on behalf of businesses. But there's a lot of weight on that. Uh, 19,000 businesses have registered, but it's not due to go properly live until I think the 21st of December. That needs to be up and working properly. Um, and I think the last thing I'd flag here is that, you know, whilst a lot of these measures do provide some certainty and are very welcome, I think the government is sort of still lining us up for the risk of disruption and some turbulence in January. And there is just a line in the command paper from yesterday that said, while the United Kingdom will uphold our obligations and continue to do all we can to support businesses and preparedness, 
this will require a sympathetic and pragmatic approach in the early stages of next year. So I think, you know, welcome, but still a lot of questions to be answered. Thanks, Joe. That was a very comprehensive sort of rundown of what, what's been agreed. Um, and yeah, I think that's a sort of very important line to flag from the command paper. Um, Adam Marshall, um, you wanted to come in and I know that sort of BCC, I think to sort of quote you, I think you said it was a belated necessary step forward, but the devil would be in the detail. Um, sort of what, what, what is your view on sort of the information we've got so far and what, what more needs to be done? Indeed, the devil is in the detail, Maddie, and our worry is translating the theory that we've seen in the announcements in the command paper into something workable for businesses on the ground. Uh, Joe is right, a lot of weight is being placed on a trusted trader scheme, um, and our chamber in Northern Ireland is, is concerned about this, as are we, um, because if you look at the record on AEO, Authorised Economic Operator, it can take businesses many months to qualify under the AEO scheme. Many of them have spent in excess of £50,000 in order to do so, and there have been backlogs uh, for those applications for some time, which cause delays. So putting a huge amount of weight on a trusted trader scheme might sound good in theory, but only if the structures of government can work quickly enough to help businesses get on that scheme in the first place. I think that's one very important thing that we have to, to be aware of. The second thing with the protocol, which also is replicated across the short straits and with all of the other ports in the UK, is that we need to know what the command and control structure is going to be like on the ground. All it takes is one person at the gates of a port, say in Larne or something like that, on a shipment coming into Northern Ireland, uh, saying, hang on a second, we have some queries about your paperwork or documentation for the entire logistics system to freeze up. And if we don't know who is ultimately responsible for decision making at every step of that process, all of this great sounding procedure that's been laid out in the command paper may not work on the ground. So having real tested and business friendly structures like that is going to be absolutely essential. And, and on the sort of those unanswered questions, particularly around whether sort of government will be able to process the applications for trusted trader enough and also the sort of command and control structure. Why, why are we in the position where we still don't know that? Um, if I can sort of potentially invite you to speculate, Adam. Uh, it's, it's a very good question because we first started our uh, Chambers of Commerce unanswered questions list four years ago in the wake of the referendum. We have been tracking those 35 key themes literally throughout this process. Um, and it, it would be saying it lightly to suggest that far too many of these areas have been left too late by UK government in order to put uh, procedures, guidelines uh, and detail in place. Um, you know, government has said and, and you know, the, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster has said that government will take its share of responsibility for making sure that the frameworks and the systems are right. They still need to do so even at this very, very late day in proceedings. Sally, you wanted to come in on that as well. I did. I'm going to get a bit tetchy. I'm afraid because I, I couldn't agree with Adam more. I'm so angry about the fact that everything is so last minute because the vast majority of these changes were inevitable once Theresa May decided on the 17th of January 2017 that we were leaving the single market in the customs union. We could have been preparing from that day onwards, which is what France, the Netherlands, Belgium and Ireland did. The fact that we've got a situation where UK traders will not be able to first access the customs declaration systems until the 23rd of December 
is crazy. How, how is any business supposed to be able to find out whether it can use a system when you've got a week, including Christmas week, to do so? Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point to raise. And I definitely want to return to the question of preparedness in EU member states, particularly amongst EU businesses, which I know that there's already been a question come through on the chat. If we just sort of stick with the Northern Ireland Protocol for the moment, Adam Prince, I wanted to bring you in as well. I was wondering, you know, we've heard the, some of the decisions that have been made, but I know that, for example, the Joint Committee has a role in reviewing the sort of VAT provisions. I mean, there are sort of other areas of trade that is sort of both governed by the Northern Ireland Protocol that maybe there aren't the same answers on or do you think that we do have the sort of response and the detail or at least the sort of principle around how it's going to work that we need? No I think you're you're right we don't have the answers there's there are so many unanswered questions and not all of these are at the customs border I and mean, one of the ones that we're struggling with is not all businesses just sell one thing if they sell goods and services maybe from Northern Ireland to the Republic it's not clear at the moment because goods fall under the EU VAT regime, but services don't. Do you need one or two invoices? If you've got something that's very intertwined, you know, a warranty on something, might that mean you get away with one invoice? There are some really detailed questions. Do you need more than one VAT number on an invoice? Is that legally permitted to have more than one VAT number on a, on a VAT invoice? These are basic things. And what worries me as well, and this comes from Sage being a a software company is whilst the cloud is absolutely the future of technology not everybody's at the, the leading edge of it there are still people running on-premise software these people need to manually do updates to their software once the rules are announced they need time to test that software and with covid and with christmas there's just not enough it experts to get into the offices to actually put in the updates once all these rules are clear and we don't know what the penalties are We've also got a flagship scheme from the UK making tax digital, and that means manual adjustments aren't allowed. But if we don't know what the rules are, you've got to do a manual adjustment. And that would be easy to say, actually, you know, if you make a genuine error, we're not going to penalise you. But even that sort of um, soft landing, as HMRC have called them, is not yet in place. And this, this is a real worry. I think no, that's really I think that's really important to flag. And I think that, you know, we can focus a lot on some of the big issues that we talk about, but sort of the some of the nitty-gritty technical questions and sort of the practical questions about how you implement some of these these issues, I think is really, really important to cover. Um sort of I guess that the final question I was going to ask, and I was sort of going to put it to you, Sally, but I'd be interested in and if anyone else has any thoughts, um, is, you know, this sort of this sort of claim from the government we've heard a few times, I think Michael Gove said it again recently, that, you know, the provisions in Northern Ireland could mean the best of both worlds for businesses based there. You know, they've got access to the EU single market, but also access to the UK internal market. Um, yeah, so Sally, if I start with you, I mean, do you think that's a fair characterization of, of the situation as we know it? So on my optimistic days, then yes, you can see that Northern Ireland having preferential access to the EU and the UK markets feels like it could be a good thing. If you wanted to wryly note to yourself that England, Wales and Scotland also used to have preferential access to both markets, but won't from 1 January, then feel free. On my pessimistic days, it feels like the sheer admin, and, and Adam P from Sage really beautifully characterised that, the sheer admin involved for a business to operate across, in Northern Ireland, across both markets, might well just mean it's too difficult 
to, to make it worthwhile. And I don't think, to be entirely fair, anyone really understands where that balance point is. What I can say is that my clients with operations in Northern Ireland are not moving them out. Not yet, anyhow, but equally my clients without Northern Irish operations aren't moving them in. Not yet, anyhow. I think that's, that seems like a sort of fair landing zone. I mean, does anyone else have any other thoughts on that? If not, that's fine. I think, Sally, it sounds like you, you've characterised it fairly. I think your panellists agree with you. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, I guess we can sort of sum that up with there's a bit more, there's a bit more clarity in Northern Ireland, but still there are some quite clear concerns, particularly about sort of about sort of conveying those agreements into the reality on the ground. And, you know, we're discussing this with three weeks to go. There really isn't much time, which seems to be the, the sort of watchword at the moment. Um, if we sort of move on to the sort of broader um, EU-UK future relationship and what that means. And I mean, as I say, I'm looking at the question Q&A and we've got a few questions coming in, which I'll, I'll draw in. But if, you know, if we if we just start with, with the fact that as I said in the introduction, whatever happens at the end of the year, we are leaving the single market and the customs union. So I guess to be provocative, surely that means everyone knows that everything's changing. So it's sort of quite straightforward to prepare. I mean, Joe Marshall, if I can just quickly come to you, um, sort of, I guess, relatively in simple terms, how would you characterise the difference between a deal and a no deal um, exit at the end of the year? Thanks, Maddie. Um, I think it's quite a big question, but I think in general terms, I think as uh, Sally and you have said, the UK will be leaving the single market and customs union and in many ways a lot of what needs to be done to prepare and many of the sort of big ticket changes are the same deal or no deal. And I think particularly as the conversation moves on to sort of no deal, we shouldn't forget that and shouldn't focus on the fact that no deal is sort of drastic changes and a deal is somehow not. There are going to be big changes either way. Um, I mean, either way, you know, there are going to be customs and regulatory checks at the border. There are going to be different regulatory regimes in the UK and the EU for firms to comply with. Uh, there are going to be big changes for services firms, many of which will find that they are perhaps unable to continue operating in the way they have done. And you know, we know there are going to be you know, a new immigration system in the UK for firms to comply with deal or no deal as well. So lots of changes. I think there are still some differences and big differences between a deal and no deal outcome. Um, I mean, obvious one is sort of tariffs, or those sort of taxes on goods at the border. Um, they will be you know, widely applicable in a no deal and uh, particularly important in certain sectors. We know sort of automotive and agriculture where tariffs can be quite high and also where there are complex supply chains embedded in the EU. But even here, I think it's important to say that in a free trade agreement, tariff-free access is not unconditional. Firms have to comply with certain rules in order to benefit it from it, including sort of rules of origin showing where their goods come from. And with so little time to go until those rules might come into force, many firms are simply not going to be in a position to comply with them uh, because they won't be able to adapt their supply chains if they need to, or even just to sort of assess whether or not they meet those rules will be really difficult in the time available. So you know, even then, the difference between deal and no deal on day one might not be, uh, might not be so drastic. I think you know, other areas where a deal might make a bit of difference is potentially streamlining some of that new red tape that firms are going to find or duplicate processes. So things like uh, mutual recognition of conformity assessment sounds very technical, but basically whether or not you have to have your goods tested in both the UK and the EU or whether or not you could just do it in one. And potentially a few sort of facilitations at the border, which might streamline some of the customs requirements for some firms like trusted trader schemes, for instance, or mutual recognition of those, but ultimately not going to fundamentally change what needs to be done there. 
And then I think there are a few sort of political implications which are quite important. So if we get a deal, there is more likely to be a better political relationship between the UK and the EU. And that might have some knock-on effects for things that are quite important to businesses around sort of decisions the EU has to make on how easy it will be to transfer data from the EU to the UK and around how much access to EU financial services markets UK firms will have. Although on that latter point, it's important to stress that it's going to be a lot less than it is now. Um, we also might get a more favourable approach from sort of EU uh, uh, EU bodies and uh, member state authorities on sort of enforcing the new rules and managing disruption as sort of new rules come into force. And just generally potentially a more positive tone in the future relationship, which potentially means that as political persuasions change on both sides of the channel, you know, a deal might be something that could be built on or adapted over time. Um, and there are lots of other wider issues around security or social security as well. So basically a deal still makes quite a lot of difference, but in terms of some of the you know, big ticket items that firms and government need to prepare for, uh, it doesn't change that hugely. Thanks, Joe. That's very helpful. And you, you all watching at home can't uh, see that Sally's been joined by her cat. I hope that she'll. I, I was going to come to Adam Marshall next, but I'm sure that hopefully the cat will still be there, so you can uh, um, sort of get get that. Um, so um, yeah, Adam Marshall. Sort of. So so Joe's obviously sort of set out some of the the sort of differences between deal and no deal. But you know, some of the big ticket items that do change. Regardless, you know, those are some of the things that businesses presumably can prepare for. Or would you say, you know, you've already talked about some of the problems of the lack of detail with the sort of Northern Ireland GBNI sort of border. Is that sort of the same from from the sort of GBEU perspective as well? Well, some of that detail is still outstanding on on, on GBEU. Some of it's exactly the same, quite frankly. Um, and if you look at preparation across the English Channel and across the North Sea, I would differentiate between member states and ports on the one hand, who have done quite a lot, and EU businesses trading with the UK, whose preparation has, I think, been as variable as UK firms has to date, right? Um, so member states, some of them, including France, for example, have put out very detailed paperwork on customs, procedures, etc., that will apply. And I think the ports on the other side of the channel really have been engaged in a little bit of competition as well, seeing who can be most ready to capture most of the cross-channel and, and cross-North Sea business um, for UK supply chains, uh, because they can process goods uh, most quickly. So I think you know that that, that that's the, the state of play for member states and for and for ports on the EU side. Um, businesses, our British chambers on the continent, of which we have many, report the same kind of variability we have in the UK. Larger firms will have done more to try to get ready, but will have complained very volubly about the lack of detail, so that they could make the do the last mile, as it were. Um, and many smaller firms are watching and waiting to see what comes out of the negotiations right now. I think it's important to remember that businesses ultimately take decisions on whether and how they trade across borders. And some of them in the six months after this transition are going to take a decision about whether they keep going or whether they stop. And government can put in place as many procedures and processes as it wants, but if the trade is not uh, beneficial to the business, if it's not profitable for the business, they're going to look at what their options are elsewhere. Now, whether that is trade with other markets around the world or domestic trade, I think we will see a lot of change in both EU and UK companies that have previously been trading with each other over the next six, 
12, 24 months, regardless of whether we see a deal or no deal. If we would like to minimize that, then we do need to see a lot of easements and simplifications after the 1st of January. And uh, from our perspective, those have got to come from both sides, not just from the UK side, which is where we've seen them to date. So we would hope that in a positive political climate around a deal, if that were to occur, both sides can, can look at easements and simplifications. And even if there's no deal unilaterally, we need governments on all sides looking at how to make sure trade can still flow across borders. So I think that's really interesting and, and you've actually managed to tick off a couple of the questions that I think have already been coming in, particularly sort of what's what does the picture look like on the EU side. I sort of had two questions I wanted to follow up. One, which is sort of coming through from the Q&A, there's a question about whether the chief computer system will be ready to handle the sort of increase um, in, in applications and declarations on the 1st of January, but also whether we know um, how sort of what what rules of origin, we don't know what rules of origin will be required for UK sales to the EU, but do we know what system of declaration firms must use? So sort of a bit of a techie question, Adam Marshall, if you know the answers to that on those two systems. And then also um, more broadly, um, you mentioned the sort of easements um, and the sort of desire sort of for both sides to consider easements. And as you said, the UK government has done that. I mean, how receptive have you found the EU? And I presume this is sort of working with your sister organisations across the EU. I mean, how likely do you think it is that the EU will consider sort of trying to manage that flow of traffic? And I guess arguably sort of, I guess, the deal or no deal situation might have an impact on that, as, as Joe sort of already mentioned. Um, on, on the second question on, on easements, um, we have not found much interest on the EU side in engaging with that particular point uh, at this stage of the game. But once we are past the 1st of January, in whatever scenario, our hope is that they would come back to it um, because their own businesses, their own exporters uh, will be concerned about what happens to supply chains, what happens to the logistics system if there is a significant disruption. So hopefully um, time will bring more clarity on that. On the, on the computer systems, just very briefly, look, uh, we have concerns about the capacity of Chief to deal with the level of additional declarations that would be made through it. It's an old system, it's being phased out. HMRC assures us and others that it will be, it will be able to, to cope. Um, but we've also got this transition over to CDS, the Customs Declaration Service, as well ongoing, which is a very big change. And I think the thing to realize from the business perspective is the information you put into one system is slightly different from the information you're being asked to put into the new system. So it's yet another form of complexity and change that businesses are going to have to face. Um, from the government perspective, it may be ideal to, to upgrade IT systems and to change the way businesses input to them. From the business perspective, that's more administration, more complexity and more cost. That's, that's yeah, not, not a necessarily positive picture, but at least shed some light on that for, for people watching. Um, Adam Prince, if I can come to you next. I mean, on the sort of timing of all of this, you know, we are getting down to the point where negotiations are ongoing. We don't know, you know, Sunday's become a new deadline. Who knows if that's going to be the case? We might just get the sort of same message of we want our chief negotiators to carry on talking. I mean, is there a point at which, or have we already passed it, where sort of it's too late because, you know, any sort of agreement that might be reached, I mean, not necessarily in the longer term, but at least for day one, you know, if we're talking about 600 to 800 pages of legal text plus annexes, how's anyone going to be able to digest what it means and are they going to be ready to actually sort of trade on those terms on the 1st of January? 
to be honest, I think that businesses that are already trading will want to take advantage of it, assuming this, their software is ready, assuming they've got the right information that they can actually demonstrate they can take advantage of it. And hopefully they will be at least some forgiveness if people are 90% plus complete. But anything that comes in that's new, no, I don't think there is a realistic opportunity, particularly for the smaller segment, to make changes. They, they, if there's an opportunity, businesses will seek to make profit. We know that. But we also know that most businesses do not expect to be able to make a profit, uh, sorry, make more profit post-transition in the immediate aftermath because there is this period that they've got to adapt, they've got to change. So no, I, I just don't see how businesses can adapt within with three weeks when most of them are just focused on survival with COVID. So what, what does that mean then, I guess, in terms of yeah. what happens on day one? It means that for most, particularly for the smaller segment, which is where a lot of my customers are, they're going to be preparing now as if there is no deal. That's my constant advice. It's a make sure you've got your registrations, make sure you've got the URI numbers you need, make sure you understand how to do a VAT return if you're actually selling into another country goods, make sure you understand how to do the VAT returns, make sure you've appointed a customs broker or a freight forwarder or someone that is dedicated in just that area so that, they, so that at least you can keep doing what you're doing today because as long as you can keep doing what you're doing today, you can keep your current business model alive while you try and adapt. Um, but trying to make a change in three weeks is, well, it's not going to be a wise move when there's so many things that can change again and there's so little um, capacity left to keep making tweaks and changes. Great, thank, thanks. Um, and I mean, I guess that the, my maybe a, a final quick follow up to that. I mean, how receptive are the are the people that you're talking to to actually being able to? So, I mean, you mentioned, for example, hiring sort of you know customs um, capacity. I mean, we know that that's been one of the big challenges this year. Is actually, you know, I think I think the government has said their capacity has increased. I think fourfold. Um, but you know, it ha have people found it easy to do those things, or or is that even preparing for sort of for the no deal exit? Has there been a struggle doing that? So we haven't heard that people are struggling to get the customers capacity, at least within Sage, we haven't heard that. But my concern is they're just not ready. Um, they've assumed that it's business as usual and the message hasn't landed. Early on, we saw that the government put a lot of invest, um, incentives there for businesses to train up staff to do customs. My own view is customs is a very complex area. I'm more of a VAT expert and VAT is complex, customs doubly so. Just look at the, the guidebooks, they're twice as thick. Get it right and you've got to pay a little bit of customs duty, maybe. Get it wrong, you end up paying a lot more customs duty because you don't realise some of the, the easements and the, the exemptions that exist. Yeah, that, that, no, that's, that's sort of important point to know. Um, Sally, I was going to bring you back. I mean, we've unfortunately lost your cats, but maybe we'll be revisited. Um, I mean, one of the questions that we haven't really talked about yet, a question that's come through from Martin from Bayes is, what is the day one no deal impact for professional service providers? So thinking about mobility and I think data, and I think that's sort of one of the other questions that again, we haven't got into particularly, Joe mentioned it, but sort of data adequacy and financial service equivalent decisions, you know, how important are they? And, and what, what are you sort of, I guess, advising clients for day one in those areas? 
Okay, so um, two immediate aspects from day one is can you get your advice to your client? As in literally, can you move a person to your client or can you flow the data to your client? COVID has actually been relatively helpful on that first point. We've discovered we can do more with our clients remotely than, than we'd realised. But once that's all over, there will be the difficulty associated with having 27 different immigration systems, all of which are slightly different, uh, that have different short-term business visitor rules, that have different project-based working rules and have different intercompany transfer type rules. So that will become harder and more expensive and more administrative. Data is, is complicated and I'm going to come back to that in just a moment uh, as almost a separate point uh, because it doesn't just apply to professional services, it's across the board. But, but once you've answered that question as in, can I physically get my person or my data to my client? The next question you have to ask yourself is, can I lawfully provide advice? And that's a regulatory matter and it varies between professional services. So if you're a management consultant or a tax advisor, which are largely unregulated, then no specific issues there. If you're um, an architect, then the various architect trade bodies have done a fantastic job of agreeing between themselves what commonality of regulation should look like. And it's pretty good coverage, not perfect, but pretty good coverage post-Brexit because of self-help than pre-Brexit. If you're an auditor or a lawyer or an actuary, it starts to get a lot more complicated. The lawyers in particular have got real problems with who can provide advice where and on which subjects because of the very convoluted nature of, of the legal services provision. All of that said, let's come back to data for just a moment because this is a really important point. Um, first thing to note is everything I'm about to say is about EU to UK data. The UK has said it will allow UK to EU data to continue to flow for at least a period of time. So this is about EU to UK data. And the issue here is around the General Data Protection Regulation or GDPR. And what GDPR does is actually two things. It provides the framework that allows private data to flow between member states. And it also creates a framework that allows data to flow from into the EU to third countries. And huge numbers of people thought it would be a really straightforward thing for the UK to simply transition from being a, a member state to being a third country because we've implemented GDPR and that should be enough. Except it isn't because the rules for third countries are much, much more stringent. And so the test moves from have you implemented GDPR correctly, yes or no, to if we take the entirety of your legislative framework in the round, can we be confident that EU citizens enjoy as similar as possible data protection in your country as they enjoy in the EU? And in the case of the UK, the answer is arguably no, because we've got in particular the what's sometimes called the Snoopers Charter uh, or the Investigatory Powers Act, which many EU member states and importantly the EU Commission thinks goes above and beyond what they're comfortable with. So. So the UK may or may not get an adequacy decision. It almost certainly won't get an adequacy decision by 1 January. And it certainly won't get an adequacy decision by 1 January if there isn't a trade deal because the EU has looked to wrap them all up into one mega super deal. Does that matter? Well, the UK did have a fallback plan. Its fallback plan was that it was going to use the US EU government to government level decision as a precedent. It was literally going to cross out US and put UK in. But that all fell apart in July when the Schrems decision said that that agreement in and of itself is unlawful. So that all that's now left 
for data to continue to flow from the EU to the UK lawfully is for companies to insert what are called standard contract clauses or binding corporate rules in. Now, this is where the Information Commissioner's Office has done a fantastic job. I would urge every business who is interested in this to go straight to the ICO's website because they've got a, literally a brilliant one-stop shop, everything you need, including contract clauses that you can cut and paste into your contracts if you need to do that. Now, many businesses will say, I don't want to reopen my contracts because I don't want to start negotiating new clauses in with my businesses. My response to them is, well, GDPR fines of 4% of global turnover, you may not have a choice. That was an incredibly uh, helpful explanation of all of those um, issues. I think, Adam Prince, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, here. I was just going to come to that point of reopening the, the contracts that businesses may have. Another gap, and we didn't cover it earlier, but it's INCO terms. Um, the actual terms that cover who's responsible for customs, duty, insurance, and everything as goods move from point of origin to point of destination. Most, most contracts for businesses based in the UK selling to the EU will probably need to be updated for those INCO terms. Those cover the actual contract itself. So if a business thinks they don't want to touch the existing contracts because they don't want to put in standard contractual clauses and they've been valid for a number of years, it's probably worth looking at them just from an INCO terms point of view as well. Uh, and I'd say that's actually going to have a more fundamental impact on managing business risk. The other thing I'd say, particularly for the small businesses, is you're not alone. Most businesses have an advisor. It's an accountant normally. Accountants spend their day looking at this. And whilst no one's got enough time really to keep reading all these regulations, accountants are better placed than most business owners, particularly in the smaller segment. So take the advice that you can get. That's a that's helpful bit of advice, I think, Adam. Um, Sally, you wanted to come in as well. Sorry, just to round off on contracts, another really easy top tip is to look at the domain that's covered by the contract. So it's not at all uncommon for somebody to write, this has happened to a number of my clients where their software provider has written to them, not Sage, absolutely not Sage for the avoidance of doubt, and said, you license our software in the EU, the UK won't be in the EU from 1 January. We assume you want the UK to continue to be able to access our software. That'll be an extra X thousand pounds, please. So do be aware that the, the, the legal domain covered matters. And it's very easy to think that you've got legal protections and then discover that actually the UK has fallen outside of them. I think that's a good point to make. And I think sort of this conversation is also just um, sort of, I think, flagging just how many different things um, business owners need to think about. Um, I think sort of related to it and sort of related to the, the discussion we've had so far, and this is sort of a bit of a question, I guess, to all three of you, but maybe Adam Marshall, I can start with you. It's just someone, and I can't see where it is in the chat now, but I noted it. Oh, here we go. It's Robbie Lansber sort of said, you know, what business sectors do we think are best prepared? So obviously we've talked about, we've sort of talked now covered, I think, quite a few different areas, but I mean, yeah, who, who, as I maybe, maybe by sector, but I mean, we can also obviously talk about the different shape of it. And I mean, I think Sally, you, you sort of talked about it a little, little bit at the top, but um, I think the other questions that are related to that, which is quite interested, is interesting, is is it because they're less affected? Is it because they've spent more money on prep, or is it they're sort of better at lobbying? And sort of how how have business uh, sort of certain sectors, I guess, responded to the challenges? And so yeah, maybe Adam, I'll start with you on that. Um, uh, I think in terms of best prepared, uh, I would suggest that financial and business services probably, if you were doing it on a sectoral basis, would be uh, top of the list. 
Um, many of those uh, sectors include a lot of very large companies who've been able to put significant resource into preparing for change. Um, but beyond that, I think it's very hard to identify specific sectors as, as being better or worse prepared than others. We tend to look at the level of sophistication of the business in terms of its engagement with international trades, and that generally is an indicator. I've seen plenty of SMEs who might be tier three or tier four suppliers, but when 90% of their business is international, they've had no choice but to do as much as they can to get prepared. And equally, I've seen some very large businesses, tier ones and, 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 and primes, who are not. So I, I don't think you can go either just by size or by sector. It's about trade intensity in a lot of cases here. Now, saying prepared um, is, is a bit of a loaded word, I think. They are the most informed about the challenges and issues they have to face, and they have taken steps where they can to mitigate those challenges. But not a single one of them would say to me or to you that they are completely prepared because they lack the detailed information required in order to do that last mile and in order to say, I know at midnight on the 1st of January that I will be able to move people, I will be able to move goods, and I will be able to move data around with certainty. Not a single company in the United Kingdom can say that today. Yes, yeah, I think that that's a really important point to flag. Um, and this sort of just comes back to the uncertainty point and the lack of detail point that I think we've covered quite a lot so far. Um, the only other thing that I wanted to come on to, unless anyone wants to come back on that point, um, is, and I think maybe, Sally, I might come to you on this, although again, if anyone else wants to jump in, is just the sort of immigration point. So this is this is the fact that, you know, freedom of movement is ending um, on the 1st of January. And you talked about sort of mobility for sort of delivering services in the EU, but for sort of firms that might have relied on EU citizens up to date, sort of being able to easily hire people from across the EU to fill certain gaps. I mean, is that, you know, the Home Office is sort of, you know, they've rolled out, they've published their white paper earlier this year, you know, they've been trying to roll it out. I mean, do you think that everyone sort of knows what's going on there? Are businesses ready to take advantage of, of the of the sort of new system there? So there's a, a couple of points wrapped in there. There's existing EU citizens that are in the UK. And I think the government actually, credit where it's due, did a really good job of making sure that EU citizens were aware of and could apply readily to the settled status um, scheme. And, and I think that on the whole, anecdotally, that's happening um, and has gone well. Then there's a separate point about EU citizens who might want to come to the UK from 1 January when they're subject to the new points-based immigration system. And that's looking much more problematic. And just as with so many other aspects of Brexit, there are two parts to that. There's the systems and then there's the basic information. Does business know what's going on? Um, the system is not looking great. It's uh, It was supposed to have been rolled out by now. It's reported to be causing crashes all over the place where, uh, where the system makes computers go down, which is clearly unhelpful. And I know it's being worked on frantically. Um, and then there's then there's a separate question about do do companies understand that things are changing and what they need to do? And actually, I think they do understand that there are changes coming to bring actually EU and non-EU citizens into the UK, um, some of which are actually easements uh, when it comes to non-EU citizens, to be fair. Um, I think where we really see problems is actually the other way, UK citizens going into the UK, into the EU. And there just seems to have been a complete breakdown in understanding that ending free movement of people isn't just stopping people coming into the UK. It's also Brits 
<laughs> going over to the EU as well. Um, so we, we find that companies haven't realised that they're going to have to track how many days Brits are spending in the UK, uh, in the EU going forward, that short-term business visits need to be tracked from now on. And short-term business visits are basically training and conferences. And if it's not training or conference, then you're into your kind of 90 day or 180 day counts. And if you're trying to get somebody to spend three months in a country to set up a new branch or a new office or to, to woo a new customer, that's going to need a visa going forward. And that's going to be expensive and time consuming. And there will be a period of admin when you have to get it sorted before you can you can get that set up. So that's kind of a long winded way of saying there's so many different aspects to immigration flowing both ways. And, and because of the complexity, it's really hard for any business. It's the theme, isn't it? It's really hard for businesses to deal with this much complexity coming down the road all at the same time. Yeah, I think that that's a very pithy summary of, of what we've been discussing so far. And I think um, your point about movement of Brits into the EU, I think is really important. And it strikes me that that's something that definitely, again, anecdotally, from my perspective, doesn't seem to have landed particularly. Um, Adam, Marshall, you wanted to jump in and think as well on this. Just just in terms of immigration to the UK, there have been a lot of promises made by government about the digitalization of processes. Um, and about the speed of processes. And my focus is on both of those because, of course, businesses are going to pay some very significant application fees in future to bring people in to the UK from any market around the world. I would love to see a three weeks or your money back guarantee to businesses using this system because the government has said that applications will be turned around quickly. Um, and, and that is what would make the system workable for many firms. Once they know what the costs are and what they need to put into the system, if they know they're going to get a result in three weeks, they can plan. Um, but if the, if the results are going to take longer or if the systems are under stress, as Sally was saying before, and are not going to deliver, I think there's got to be some sort of feedback mechanism that says to the business, look, we've failed. We have not hit the service standard required. So here's part or all of your money back. Um, and, and if we don't get that, I think business confidence in the new system won't be as high as it otherwise might be. Uh, this points-based system is workable. Sally mentioned that there are easements for for the rest of the world. I think a lot of businesses will be able to get the specific skills that they require when they can't hire them locally in future if the theory is turned into practice. But that's where the, the, the key is, really. Well, let's hope someone from the Home Office is watching and, and might uh, take on board what you're suggesting. Um, I think this it actually brings me on quite nicely to sort of, I guess, the, the, the sort of, I guess, what, so what, what happens now? We've assessed business isn't ready. So, so what should be done about it? Sort of section of the event that um, I was thinking about. I mean, there's a sort of broader question really about, you know, with, with three weeks to go and given we know that businesses aren't ready, how should the government respond? What more can the government do? Now, I was going to come to Joe first, just, I mean, I guess from your perspective, Joe, I mean, you know, has the government done all it can do before the end of the year? You know, what's your assessment of how the government has been sort of approaching all of this? Thanks, Maddie. I mean, I think a lot of these points have been covered during our conversation so far, but ultimately, you know, the government set business and itself a huge challenge in preparing for the end of transition period alongside COVID uh, in a very short space of time. It was already a very short time frame to make these fundamental changes, deal or no deal, and to prepare. 
Uh, and we know that you know, ongoing uncertainty over outcome of negotiations hasn't helped because even where in theory firms could be preparing for certain things, we know that pervading sense of uncertainty, we know that lack of detail in many areas hasn't helped. Uh, and so that I think has been you know, a huge problem, a huge sticking point. I mean, the government you know, has been trying to uh, increase awareness and trying to sort of drive readiness. Um, and obviously it's had its sort of extensive communications campaign. I think I would probably draw a distinction on the communications campaign in terms of how well it's done and whether it's done enough between some of the private engagement and some of the public facing engagement. So we know that government has been you know, using its databases to write to VAT registered firms, to write to hoarders registered with the DVSA, to use business groups to sort of uh, engage firms and try and deliver core messages. But as you know, Adam and others have been saying earlier, uh, you know, it's it, it's a problem when you know, there haven't been the detail or the certainty, you know, telling firms to go and look at guidance when it doesn't actually answer the questions they need on the ground isn't going to help. Um, but I think some of that private engagement has been more constructive. I think the general sort of check, change, go communications campaign uh, aimed at the general public, but also at those sort of smaller businesses and firms which are not going to be reached by some of those more direct channels has been a real problem because I think ultimately a lot of the constraints on it have been political that you know, for too long it focused on selling the opportunities of Brexit rather than focusing on the sort of nitty gritty of this is what's changing and ultimately if you're not ready this is what the consequences are uh, and we did see a pivot towards that and the sort of time is running out campaign over the last couple of months but even then you know failure to use the word Brexit in a lot of campaign you know confusing language around no deal hasn't helped um, so I think you know, the communications could have been a lot better and I think you know, they're really going to have to step those up if there is a deal, you know, real clarity on what the information is, what needs to be done and when. And then I think there's also uh, a point where you know, the government has provided some tailored support to businesses in certain areas, you know, whether it's increasing customs capacity or whether it's you know, inf uh, money for business groups to help them sort of promote material. But, you know, that has been relatively limited. It's been more limited than some of the European countries where they provided more general grants to firms to take on some of the measures and preparations they need. So I think it has been you know, a, a really a mixed picture. But I think the point I sort of end on is, you know, the government has been doing quite a lot. Uh, you know, business groups have been doing a lot. But as we sort of were talking about earlier, you're never going to be fully prepared for all these changes, uh, and especially not in the context in which we're having to prepare and the timeframes in which businesses and government are going to have to prepare. And so there are big questions, I think, for the government about what it does with that lack of preparedness. There is disruption that might need to be you know, mitigated and handled, but also you know, lots of questions about how do you enforce the new rules if you've got a lot of non-compliance from firms that either don't know things have changed or simply haven't been able to comply with the new rules in the time and circumstances provided. Thanks Joe, I think that's, a, that's, that's really helpful and I think the point about compliance is definitely um, really important. I mean if I can come to the rest of the panel, I guess to each of you in turn really, I mean, I'm I'm sure that sort of in your direct communications with the government, you have some very key asks of them. But, you know, looking ahead to the end of the year, if, if there is the sort of what I guess one thing or two things that you really do want government to do or think about, whether that's on sort of handling the lack of preparedness or the in, you know, in the new year sort of. And I guess, you know, we've discussed obviously already about the lack of detail and to some extent that is to do with the negotiations and the fact that the negotiations are ongoing. So. I guess my question is, you know, as I said, is is there anything more that government can do at this stage? 
Um, you know, or, or do you have some very specific asks? Um, maybe Adam Prince, I can come to you first on that question. Yeah, um, and the first thing I'd, I'd agree with Joe that some of the comms haven't been as helpful as they could be. But I think the certainly Sage, BCC, Ernst Young, there's a lot of organisations out there that have put a lot of effort into simplifying the message and making it very, very targeted. I mean, we've got a Brexit hub, sage.com backslash Brexit, to give it a short plug. Um, the, it's the, it's giving practical advice to people. Um, and the one thing that we've been asking for this for quite a time is HMRC called it a soft landing. You could call it uh, an implementation period or a forgiveness period. Businesses will not, in the, in the main, will not try and break the rules. It will be ignorance, they don't know the rules, or for the businesses that aren't on cloud-based software maintained by um, good providers, their software may not be ready in time. So recognize that and work with industry and businesses. Don't put up penalties. Um, don't create even more friction and cost at, at one of the worst times in certainly recent business history. Uh, you know, we've got the double whammy, we've got Brexit, we've got COVID. So let's have a period when if people try and get it wrong well you explain to them what they need to do rather than putting any other penalty in their way great um adam marshall do you want to do you have any thoughts on the sort of anything else you'd also be asking government for at this stage first of all i agree entirely with what adam prince has just said about uh, easements compliance and waivers in these early months as businesses try to get it right i'd add two asks to government right now one is for every single department to go back and look at its guidance to businesses, then look themselves in the mirror and say, is this clear? Is it precise? And does it have adequate detail? Or am I sending people on a wild goose chase? Unfortunately, too much of what is published and what is out there sends businesses on a wild goose chase, meaning they're not doing anything. Uh, and until governments get the precision of that guidance up, a lot of which is in the UK government's own hands, not bound up in the negotiations, then we will be in a period of mitigation and disruption. Second point is government has got to focus on flow at UK ports right now. There is already a massive pre-existing business problem with flow of goods through ports in this country. We've got COVID related issues where the logistics system around the world is under stress. We have Christmas, which adds additional volume and is causing problems. Uh, and we have this change on the 1st of January as well. We've got to get the ports moving. And that's about government business and the ports themselves working together. Uh, it's a good point. I think on the, we haven't obviously discussed the current disruption at ports, but it is important to flag sort of we're going into this with already um, sort of concerns there. Um, Sally, I'll come to you, but I also want to put to you a question that's come in um, relatively late. Just and as if anyone else wants to jump in, do feel free as well. Um, but does the panel, so I guess Sally, do you have a good grasp of the extent to which UK goods exporters are setting up new EU subsidiaries and sort of EU goods exporters setting up new UK subsidiaries, whether for tax requirements or sort of ground handling concerns. I mean, that's it. That's a slightly sort of, I just thought that's quite an interesting question that we haven't covered. Um, but I also would like to get your sort of key ask from government as well. Okay, so let's start with the key ask of government. Um, Recognise that all of these easements will come to an end, they're temporary, and all of them have got different end dates. So creating some kind of tracker so that businesses can readily see which easements are ending when would be a massive step forward. That would be my ask of government. Um, in terms of 
subsidiary creation. This is another asymmetrical area. So on the whole, EU companies are not needing to set up UK businesses, UK companies. And the reason is the various easements and facilitations that the UK government has put in place that will allow EU businesses on the whole to continue to trade into the UK more easily than for UK businesses to continue to trade into the EU. We are seeing UK businesses having to incorporate EU subsidiaries, um, generally for one of two reasons. The first is because they need to demonstrate that they can be act as the importer of record for customs purposes. And for various reasons, they can't find an EU third party who's willing to take that on for them. Or, and this is kind of the flip side of the same coin, they need to have substance in the EU to meet their regulatory requirements. So one of one of my clients makes electrical equipment for in people's homes and there's basic legislation that says, and I am paraphrasing, you mustn't set fire to people's homes and you mustn't electrocute them. And if you do one of those two things, then we expect you to have a subsidiary in the EU that we can sanction for your negligence. And that requires an actual legal entity, not just a third party to, to take on that risk. So, yes, we are seeing UK entities having to set up EU subs specifically because of Brexit. Thanks, that's really, really helpful and a concise explanation of it. Um, now, I know we're sort of at time, but I did promise we would end on an optimistic note. Um, so I will um, sort of ask each of you um, if you can very briefly, because as I said, we are sort of up to time. And I don't want to keep you much longer. Uh, sort of, I don't know, is that, what is what is one of the opportunities? You know, we're obviously concerned about the end of the year. There, clearly, there's going to be a period of non-compliance of businesses as they try and understand the rules. And you know, once we're sort of, I guess, through some of that, um, what 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 so would you be recommending businesses to think about in terms of some of the opportunities from being outside of the EU? Um, if maybe uh, I'll start with Adam and Prince. Yeah, um, the first thing is businesses need to stabilise first, but I think there is massive opportunity. Uh, small businesses or small to medium sized entities um, generate 100 billion of export trade each year, but that's only 10% of SMEs that export. If more SMEs could export, that could significantly increase their opportunities, opportunities for profit and the UK's um, global position as a whole. So once you understand the rules, don't just jump in for its own sake, make sure it's profitable, but export, businesses that export generally make a lot more profit. Great, thanks, that's, that's good advice. Um, Sally, if I come to you next. So the UK economy is actually very different from the rest of the world. I mean, everyone knows that our economy is 80% services. That is pretty standard for rich countries. What's really unusual is the extent to which we rely on services exports. We will be the first country in human history next year where more than 50% of our exports are made up of services. For most countries, it's about 25%. So if we can get on the front foot in our negotiations with other countries around services liberalizations, we can number one be at the cutting edge globally, but number two, we can actually enter into agreements that flatter our account economy and recognize its differences as opposed to being one of 28. That's also that's also strikes me as good advice um, for those trade negotiators. Um, Adam Marshall, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, I think it's important to remember, and I agree with both uh, Adam and Sally on their points, that ultimately it's businesses that do deals and not governments. So the more business to business connectivity and contact that we see around the world, the more you're likely to see UK businesses finding those new opportunities that are out there. 
I, of course, would want them to use Chambers of Commerce here in the UK as gateways to many of them and go on all the virtual trade missions, etc., that we've seen uh, over uh, the past few months. Uh, but the other thing to remember as well is that when governments do trade agreements, there are potential opportunities too. And I have to give credit to colleagues at the Department for International Trade for moving very swiftly to secure terms of trade uh, for the UK in a very big number of markets around the world. And I hope that that number does increase and that the potential benefits to individual businesses are then well communicated. Great, and I think I, I think that's good. I think, you know, we, we have obviously discussed a, a lot of the challenges coming at the end of the year. And I think I thank all of the panel for their sort of concise and clear explanations of what is going on. This is obviously very complicated. There's a lot of complex change coming all at once. Um, and businesses have a huge challenge being able to respond to that. But I do, it is sort of nice to end on some of the sort of opportunities looking, looking into next year and beyond. And I'd also just say that, you know, all the panellists, um, sort of Sage, uh, EY and British Chambers of Commerce have done a lot of work trying to communicate these changes to businesses. So sort of, you know, I'd like to give them credit for all of that work as well. Um, and and thanks very much for joining us. And thank you also, Joe, uh, my colleague, for, for coming and setting out some quite clear explanations about what is coming. So um, we could have carried on chatting for longer. And I'm sorry I've run a few minutes over. Um, but I'd just like to say thank you also to all of you for watching, for sending in your questions. I hope we covered most of them. I'm sorry if we didn't quite. Um, Obviously, we don't know what's going to be happening with the Brexit negotiations, but I'm sure many of us will be following very closely. So um, thank you very much. I hope you all have a very good day and please do um, follow a lot, follow our um, sign up to our website, sort of newsletter. Um, do have a look. We have many other conversations on um, our IFG Live page and we also do um, publish them as podcasts if you don't want to watch a YouTube video. Um, so thanks very much um, and hopefully see you again soon.